Hello, everybody. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in chapter 25 of Acts, and I'm going to cover verses 1 through 12. The topic will be Paul's trial before Festus, Portius Festus in Caesarea. Our context is this. In the previous chapter, Paul had been left under house arrest for two years by Felix, the previous governor who was deposed in about 60 AD. Festus has just taken over from Felix. And this, the reason that Paul was under confinement was because the Jews in Jerusalem, Paul, when he was cut back from the third journey, he started a riot, but it wasn't his fault, in Jerusalem. People accused him of preaching against the Jews, preaching against the temple, preaching against the law. His words were twisted. His actions were twisted. He was falsely accused of carrying a Gentile into the temple area where the punishment was death. And he had a hearing before the Sanhedrin. He had a hearing before he tried to convince the Roman commander, Lord Claudius Lysias, that he was innocent. Then Claudius Lysias sent him to Caesarea where he went before Felix and tried to convince Felix that he was innocent. And although he couldn't get sprung, at least he wasn't sent back to Jerusalem where he could be murdered by the Jews in the Sanhedrin. So that's where we are. We're in Acts chapter 25, 1 through 2. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, that's the province of Judea, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Of course, Caesarea is on the coast there. That's where ships would land, carrying Roman officials to their bailiwick, their jurisdiction in, in Judea. Then the chief priests and leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, and I'm in the middle of a sentence. Let me go ahead and read verse 3. They appealed, asking him to do them a favor against Paul, that he might summon that he might summon him, that he, Portius Festus, might summon him, Paul, to Jerusalem. They, that's the Sanhedrin, were preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Now, Jerusalem is about 60 miles from Caesarea, a two-day trip, as the NFA Study Bible says. Festus had arrived in Caesarea and waited for three days before he went down to Jerusalem, probably to rest up from the trip from Rome, or wherever he came from. The chief priest and the leaders of the Jews, once Portius Festus got there, they once again brought, dredged up the old false charges against Paul and said, please... Let's try him again in Jerusalem. Now, this Portius Festus, as I said in previous audios, he was the good governor of Caesarea, of Judea, operating out of Caesarea. His predecessor, Felix, was the bad governor of, Caes- of Judea, operating out of Caesarea. They're easy to confuse because of the similarity of their names. So I, I distinguish them by saying Felix is the bad guy and Festus is the good guy. He's a good ruler. Felix was a jerk, looking for bribes, attempted assassination of the high priest, all kinds of bad stuff. Now notice in verse 3 that the Jews wanted Portius Festus to send Paul to Jerusalem so the Jews could ambush Paul on the way to kill him. So obviously this, there was not going to be any fair trial in Jerusalem. It was a, a murder plot. Now this is probably the same group that was going to ambush Paul on his way to Sanhedrin to the Sanhedrin a couple of years earlier when Paul had just gotten arrested after the riot in the temple complex and Claudius Lysias was about to send him to his second hearing before the Sanhedrin, after the first hearing before the Sanhedrin Sanhedrin dissolved into a riot. And 40 people, 40 assassins said, well, send him to the Sanhedrin again, Claudius Lysias, and we'll ambush him and we'll kill him. 
But the plot was discovered, and somehow Paul's nephew knew of it, went and told Paul. Paul told the his attending centurion soldier, said, hey, I need to go talk to Claudius Lysias. Lysias. And when he got to Lysias, he said, hey, they're out to kill me. And so Lysias says, all right, you're out of here. We're sending you to Caesarea. And he went to Caesarea and had his case before. Felix, as the Jews sent up, they, they hired a lawyer to tell us, and then they the Sanhedrin sent a delegation up there to try to convince Felix that Paul was guilty, and of course he wasn't guilty, and Felix was not going to execute or turn over a Roman citizen to a lynch mob, and so he just kept him under house arrest. He didn't want to let him loose either because he didn't want the Jews to get mad with him. So that was the first ambush, and now the Jews have still not forgotten Paul after two years. They want to get him, and so it's probably they probably dealt with the same people that had planned that first assassination. Now, in the first assassination, it doesn't actually say the Sanhedrin was involved in it. It just says there were 40 Jews that formed a conspiracy. But you got to be dumber than grass not to know that the Sanhedrin was involved in that. Now, you got to be pretty innocent, pretty trusting of these lynch mobbers to think that they didn't have anything to do with this assassination, the, the first assassination attempt. Here, it is explicitly said by Luke that, yes, they were involved in an assassination attempt. There's some justice for you. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that, it, notice that it doesn't say why the Jews wanted to summon Paul to Jerusalem. Verse 3 says they asked Paul, they asked Portius Festus to do a favor against Paul that Festus might summon Paul to Jerusalem. It doesn't say why Paul would be summoned to Jerusalem. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculates that apparently the Jews had the insolence to ask Festus to have him executed without a trial. I don't know how he's just speculating on that. I'm not sure they would be that gross about it. I, I can't imagine asking a, a judicial official to execute somebody without a trial. But I think suspect they asked Paul to come back, asked Festus to bring Paul back to Jerusalem so they could have another hearing, another inquiry. Verses 4 through 5 of Acts 25. However, Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Remember, he's in Jerusalem now talking to the Jews, and he said, oh, look, I'm getting ready to go back to Caesarea. Paul's already there. What's the point of me bringing him to Jerusalem under guard? I mean, he's already under guard at Caesarea. Why don't you come up? Why don't you come back to Caesarea with me? So let me read verses 4 and 5 again. However, Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly, that he, Festus, was about to go there to Caesarea shortly. Therefore, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me and accuse him. Remember, you leave Jerusalem, you go down automatic. You go to Jerusalem, you go up. Let the men of authority among you go down with me and accuse him. And that accuse means to bring proper legal proceedings against him. In other words, to indict him. It's not just to verbally accuse him, but it means to legally accuse him if there's any wrong in this man. Now, Adam Clark says something interesting, which I don't agree with. He said that it was amazing that Festus refused this favor to the Jews. That Festus would want to please the Jews as he embarks upon his new job as ruling the Jews, that he would want to please them. And Clark says it's amazing that Festus did that, that he refused to send Paul to the Jews, and that God disposed Festus's heart sort of providentially, almost miraculously, I guess, to protect Paul. Well, I don't think that's necessary. I don't think it was astonishing that Festus didn't do that in the natural, that he didn't send Paul to be tried in the Sanhedrin. He was a good ruler. He must have known the Jews would not conduct a fair hearing. Festus was a fair and honest and judicious man, according to historical sources. 
Paul was already in Caesarea. What's the, why should I have to drag him all the way to that? Paul have to send a military guard from Caesarea to bring Paul back to Jerusalem. Why don't you just come up here to Jerusalem? It's much easier for you to come up. So I think even in the natural Festus, I don't think it was a supernatural event that Festus refused to send Paul to the Jews. He had good reason for keeping Paul, Paul in Caesarea. Now we go to verses 6 and 7 in Acts 25, when he, that's Portius Festus, had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the judge's bench, he commanded Paul to be brought in. And because that little detail, he was seated at the judge's bench, that tells us this is an official judicial proceeding. This is not a time for chit-chat. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were not able to prove. So the Jews did send their delegation again, like they did two years earlier to Felix. Now they're sending their delegation of people from the Sanhedrin, probably, to to accuse Paul again. Now the last time, what what did they accuse him of? Well, they accused him of well, if you if you lump all the charges together, again when it when they came before Claudius Lysias, the commander, when they went before Felix, the governor in Caesarea, is basically this. He started a riot. There's your civil charge. And then he had things against our law. He was against Moses' law. He was against the temple. He's against the Jewish people. Well, those last three things, the religious things, the Romans don't care about. They just care about law and order. And so they came and they and they made their case. Now, John Gill says that the old Roman lawyer, or allegedly Roman lawyer, we can kind of tell from his name, Tertullus, that he might might have been Roman, Gill says he came with the Sanhedrin again, just like he did two years ago. I don't know how in the world Gill knows that. Probably a speculation. But at any rate, Adam Clark points out the Jews by now had probably figured out the Romans were not going to be concerned with theology that Paul spoke against the law of the Jews in the temple. They don't care about that. So they probably manufactured charges of sedition, treason, and riot. Because after all, wherever Paul went, there was a riot. There was a riot in the temple complex. There was a riot before the Sanhedrin. Of course, it wasn't Paul's fault. It was the other people causing them the riots, not him. So Clark says the Jews probably gave up on the religious religious charges, but Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say to the contrary that some of the charges may have been religious. Quote, these charges seem to have been a jumble of political and religious matters which they were unable to substantiate. And that's the important thing. They couldn't prove it. That's one thing, nice thing about fair trials is you got to have evidence. I don't care if you're trying to convict Nazi criminals at Nuremberg, you got to have evidence. Acts 25, 8 through 9. While Paul made the defense that, quote, neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned at all. So Paul just, since he's answering Jewish legal charges, it makes you think that maybe the Jews tried that again, tried to come up against him on, on bringing charges of that Paul was acting against Judaism, against Paul. I don't know, but at any rate, whether they did or not, Paul answered that way. He says, I didn't do anything wrong. Not against the Roman law, not against Caesar, not against the Jewish law. And I certainly didn't preach against the temple. Verse 9, Then Festus, wanting to do a favor for the Jews, replied to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem, there to be tried before me on these charges? Now, how could Paul say that he was not against the Jewish law? Well, remember, Paul often said that as the Jerusalem Council said, that you don't have to keep the law to get saved. But that's not the same thing as saying that you're against the Jewish law. He never said that any Jew that wanted to couldn't keep a vow. In fact, 
he started that riot, he allegedly started that riot in Jerusalem two years earlier because he had taken four Jews into the temple to shave their heads and, and do the sacrifices to end, end the, the vow, probably the Nazarite vow that they were keeping. That's not being opposed to Jewish law. He himself had taken a vow in Syncria on the third journey on the way back in, in the port city of Corinth in Syncria. He had taken a vow, shaved his head to end that vow. He wasn't against the Jewish law. He was just against using the Jewish law and saying you've got to keep the Jewish law in order to be justified before God. But he was right when he said he was against the Jewish law. Now, the other charge that he defended himself against, against, he said, I have done nothing against the temple. Now, this is a little bit more dicey, if you ask me. It's because Jesus had prophesied the destruction of the temple, and if Paul's repeating Jesus' teaching, was somewhere, you know, somebody might say, hey, you're saying that God's going to come here and before one generation passes away and not leave one stone on top of another, as Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And so now you're telling us that the temple's going to go down? Now, I don't know where Paul actually taught that in the, in the recorded, anywhere in the New Testament, that he actually quoted Jesus on that. But it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he did do that, in which case he might be vulnerable on that charge. However, he had not defied the customs of the temple as it was presently standing. He never said he wanted to tear the temple down. I mean, if God wants to do it, that's because the Jews sin and rebel. But he's not advocating the temple be torn down. And the Jews said that he had carried Trophimus, the Ephesian, into a forbidden area in the temple where it says if you bring a Gentile in here, you're going to die. Well, Trophimus... He was a Gentile, but he wasn't taken into the temple. Acts 21, verse 29, we read, For they, that's the Jews, had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple complex. They supposed. They assumed. And you know that old saying about assuming something? If you assume something, it'll make an ass, A-S-S, out of you, you, and me. Me. A-S-S-U-M-E, assume. Well, they supposed, and they supposed wrongly. All right, so there's one charge against the Jewish law. Paul was not against the Jewish law, just said you can't use it for salvation. He was not against the temple. He did not bring anybody into the temple violating the customs. He never broke any temple, any law that was concerning the temple, even though Jesus said that temple was going to be destroyed. And nor against Caesar, he didn't start any riot because he wasn't trying to start a political kingdom. He wasn't interested in politics. He was interested in a spiritual kingdom. He was not interested in a political kingdom in a rivalry with Rome. Now, people love to charge him with this. In Acts 17, 6-7, another band of Jews in Thessalonica said this, when they did not find them, Paul and his companions, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has received them as guests. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Yeah, you know, Jesus is not interested in running the Roman Empire. He was interested in being king of his church. So they accused him of being against Caesar, as usual. This is a typical charge. But Paul, on the other hand, as the NIV Study Bible points out, he was constantly upholding the civil authorities and their their power, their their legal authority. For example, in Romans 13:1 through 7, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's public servants continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. Now, does that sound like a revolutionary to you? That sounds like a moss-backed, blue-gummed reactionary who says put up with all kinds of garbage from your government before you start a revolt. So, Paul was not preaching against Caesar. Now, this letter to the Romans was written on the third journey, so it was written before this trial. I don't know whether Paul brought that up in his defense. I'm sure he probably did. He also wrote 1 Timothy 2, 1-2. This is later when he was in Rome in prison. First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for anyone, for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Does that sound like a revolutionary? These Jews accusing Paul were a lynch mob. They had no evidence, and they were so eaten up with rage and anger because Paul had the audacity to say that their little Jewish political kingdom was going to be superseded by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. The Jews, a couple of years before, two years before, when they were before Felix, they said this, Acts 24, 5, For we, these Jews, have found this man to be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. A plague, huh? An agitator. So that's how, those verses I just read, does that, that sound like an agitator to you? And Festus must have known this. He must have known these guys were out there. He's not stupid. He knows the Jews don't have a case. Now, Festus, even though he knew that Paul didn't have a case, that the Jews didn't have a case, he still wanted to please the Jews. Remember, this is he's just on the job. He's got to rule these people. He wants to keep them happy. So he says, how about if we, he, he goes to Paul and says, he's going to feel him out. You know, you want to go to Jerusalem instead of Caesarea? He says, if we're going to have a trial, we can have it down there in Jerusalem. And he wasn't promising Paul that, he wasn't saying, I'm going to turn you over to the Jews so that they might kill you. But Paul's not stupid. He's already dealt with these crazy people before. He knew that they hated his guts. They, he knew that they weren't interested in justice and that they would kill him. I'm, you know, I, They'd already tried once. Why would they try again? And as a matter of fact, they were. They, As we've just read, previously read in this chapter, they had am, assassins already lined up to ambush him on the way to Jerusalem. So Paul's not stupid. He knows that he's going to get killed if he goes back to Jerusalem. But Festus says, go try and feel him out because, you know, maybe we can maybe we can give him something, make him a little bit happy so I won't get blamed for letting you loose. And that's the only reason that Paul was not let loose is because of the political pressure of the Jews. The Romans had to govern the Jews, and the Jews liked to riot at any, at any excuse, and Roman governors would get blamed by the Roman government back in Italy for not keeping order. And so the Jews had power over these magistrates, over these judges. So, Felix is testing Paul out. Now, he probably, Adam Clark says, he was trying to please the Jews, and he asked Paul if he wanted to go back to Jerusalem. He didn't command Paul to go back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Why? As Adam Clark says, because Festus knew that he could not force a Roman citizen like Paul 
into a new trial at Jerusalem. You can't tell a Roman citizen where to go. Now, Festus was probably knew that Paul was going to refuse to go to Jerusalem. Festus wasn't stupid either, and he knew that Paul knew. He knew that Paul knew that these Jews were out to get him, so he probably expected Paul to say no. But at least now, uh, once he's once he does say no, Festus can go to the Jews and say, "Look, I tried to get it moved to Jerusalem, but Paul didn't go, and he wouldn't ref- he wouldn't agree to go." And a Roman citizen has a right to get tried in Rome. I or he could get he could get tried wherever he wants to before a Roman. Uh, tribunal, I can't force a Roman citizen to go get down there to get tried by a Jewish court. I wanted to move the trial to Jerusalem, but a Roman citizen can appeal to Caesar. Nothing I could do about it. But he's trying to get Paul to kind of take some of the heat off of Festus. Festus is trying to get Paul to do that by asking Paul to voluntarily go to Jerusalem. And of course, Paul's not going to do that. Paul had facts and justice on his side, but the Jews had political power on their side. That's why Paul was kept under house arrest for two years under Felix and Caesarea. Felix knew he was innocent, but he couldn't. He didn't want to let him go because he'd make the Jews mad. We go to verses 10 and 11 of Acts 25. But Paul said, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as even you can see very well. If I am doing wrong or have done anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul there states very baldly his innocence, and he says, I'm not refusing to go down to Jerusalem because I'm scared to die. I don't refuse to die if I'm guilty. Yeah, I should die, but I'm not guilty, and I'm not going to die for something I didn't do. I ought to be tried before Caesar's tribunal, not before the Jews' tribunal. I've done no wrong to the Jews. Absolutely, he had done absolutely nothing wrong to the Jews. And he says, not only have I not done anything wrong to the Jews, you can see that very well. This is at the end of verse 10. He says, as even you can see, Festus, very well, I ain't done nothing to these Jewish inquisitors and accusers. I haven't done anything. Now, why would Paul think that Festus could have clearly known, as you can see, that Paul was innocent? Well, Festus's predecessor, Felix, could have informed him. He says, I'm keeping him under house arrest, but he didn't do anything. There would be a record of the trial available, as Adam Clark says, and Festus could read that. It could be that Lysias's letter to Felix could have come into Festus's hands. John Gill says, now, I don't know how that letter would show that Paul was innocent, except that the letter never accused Paul of anything. He said, you just need to figure out what's going on, because I can't figure out what's going on. So that letter at least showed that Lysias didn't think Paul was guilty enough to hold him. So Lysias let him loose, sent him to Caesarea. But most probably, as John Gill and Adam Clark say, the reason that Festus obviously knew, as he could see that Paul was innocent, was because was from Paul's oral vindication of himself, which he had made to Festus, his defense at, at Festus' hearing. So Paul's pretty confident of his innocence, and he knows that if he gets to Caesar in a, in a fair trial, he's going to get sprung. He's not going to get sprung by going to a Jewish tribunal, the Sanhedrin. Now, of course, how could Paul do this? Because it's well known. It was the right of every Roman citizen to have a criminal case heard before Caesar. Not a civil case, but a criminal case, which this was. Either Caesar or his representative. Paul knew that if he went to Rome and got acquitted, it would be more than just his acquittal, but it would show to the Roman world that Christianity is innocent of all these charges of sedition. And in fact, this could have led to the recognition of Christianity as a distinct religion from Judaism which, of course, would be a nice thing from Paul's point of view. Or right, let's summarize some of the options as to why Paul decided to appeal to Caesar. First of all, Festus seemed to incline to favor the Jews. 
he said, "Well, why don't we go back to Jerusalem, Paul?" You know, he seemed like he was not be, he was he was given into the Jews. So that's one more reason Paul wouldn't want to go back to Jerusalem. All right, that's the first reason why Paul decided to appeal to Caesar. Second reason Paul may have decided to appeal to Caesar, because Paul may have gained knowledge of the second plot to ambush him on the way back to Jerusalem, the plot we just mentioned. Third reason he may have decided to appeal to Caesar, he had a vision from Jesus in Acts 23.11. This is when he was in the barracks there at Antonia Fortress under Claudius Lysus's control the Roman commander, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So he had a direct vision from Jesus that he was going to Rome, and hey, that's a good way to get there. Appeal to Caesar, you got to go to Rome. Fourth reason why he decided to appeal to Caesar is he knew that the Sanhedrin was a kangaroo court, and if he went to Jerusalem, he's likely going to get killed. Now, the Roman law was very explicit. If you had appealed to Caesar... A judicial official could not execute the prisoner, could not torture the prisoner, could not scourge the prisoner, could not imprison the prisoner, could not condemn the prisoner. Couldn't do all that stuff. When I say imprison or condemn, I mean you can't give somebody a prison sentence for having committed a crime if you appeal to Caesar. Caesar was the ultimate appeals court, the ultimate Supreme Court. And this law was quote-unquote sacred according to John Gill. Adam Clark points out that Pliny, under the Emperor Trajan, refused to execute Roman citizens who had turned Christian, even though he's trying to persecute the Christians. He wasn't going to execute a Christian who was a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship was a big deal. Now, so did Paul make a good decision to appeal to, appeal to Caesar with all those reasons that I just gave you? I think, yes, he did make a good decision. But Herod Agrippa II didn't think so. Herod Agrippa II was the the quote-unquote king, he was the, the, the governing official of the areas east of the Sea of Galilee, Batania, Trachonitis, I think is one of them, Galonitis, I can't remember all those little districts out there east of the Sea of Galilee, and he ended up being in charge, I think, over, over the whole area, all of, of, of Judea, and later on in the last half of chapter 25, Festus, after Paul makes his appeal to go to Caesar, before Festus sent Paul to Rome, Agrippa showed up in town in Caesarea to see Festus, and Festus let Paul talk to Agrippa. And after Paul gave his defense to Agrippa, Agrippa said, Hey, Acts 26, verse 32, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, he was just showing how innocent Paul was, but just because Paul's innocent, that doesn't mean that he would be set free. Festus was under pressure from the Jews. He might have said, yeah, he's innocent, but I'm not going to set him free. I'm going to hold him under house arrest again or keep him in prison, which he's not supposed to do as a Roman official, though. So maybe that argument is not as strong. Maybe Agrippa knew, would say, would think, well, Festus, you know, you can't keep a Roman citizen without facts in, in the clink. So you're going to have to set him free. But, you know, it, you just don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how the trial's going to turn out. What happens if they have the trial and Festus decides, yeah, Paul, you're guilty. And so he tells his Roman masters, well, yeah, I put him in the clink or I executed him, but there was evidence against him. So besides Agrippa didn't know about that vision that Paul had and he didn't care. He didn't know that Paul wanted to get to Rome to preach the gospel. So, yeah, Paul made the right decision. We go now to verse 12. After Festus conferred with his council, he replied, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. His council is the officials and legal experts who made up the governor's advisory council. Why did Festus deliberate with his council? Since the right of appeal to Caesar was absolute, 
Why didn't Festus just say, okay, Paul, you appeal to Caesar, you can go to Caesar. But first he conferred with his council. Adam Clark speculates the answer to this can be answered. This can be found this way. Paul probably asked the question of, I want to go to Rome. He probably asked the question of Festus this way. I will stand trial here in Caesarea, but if not, I want to go to Rome. So Paul is basically saying, look, in no case I will go to Jerusalem. However, I'll be all right with Caesarea, and I'll be all, I'll be all right with being tried in Rome, but I'm not going to Jerusalem. Now, if that was the case, then the council will have to deliberate, do we try him here in Caesarea, or do we send him to Rome? Well, from Festus's point of view, Rome was a good decision because he, Festus got out of a sticky situation with the Jews and a Roman citizen. Paul, uh, because the, the Jews didn't want Paul to be let out, but Festus could not condemn a Roman citizen without a, a decent legal case. So he was sort of in a bad place. By sending Paul to Rome, Festus is relieved of his dilemma. Paul may have seen that when he asked for an appeal in Rome. He might have seen, you know, Festus, he thinks I'm innocent, but he's gotten pressure from the Jews. I, I'll get him out of his trouble and appeal to Rome. I want to go there anyway, and Festus is probably going to allow this because it'll get him out of trouble. And so Paul might have, that might have been one more encouragement to Paul to ask for an appeal in Rome. Now, Felix made, Festus, I'm sorry, Festus made an open statement. You appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. This is so the Jews can hear this. I'm sure they were still around during this trial. Paul's making his defense. And Festus made his decision explicit because that he's he, he's letting everybody know that the reason he's letting Paul go was because of his appeal to Caesar. He wanted to show the Jews that, Fe, that he, Festus, had no choice in the matter. He had to let Paul go. Oh, and he probably said, oh, gee, I'm so sorry. I, we're going to have to let Paul go to Rome. I don't like it, but that's what the law is. Gill says he probably replied with a little bit of resentment and resignation to make it sound like he didn't like it, but he had no choice but to send Paul to Rome. At any rate, if any Jew could come to, to Festus and say, how dare you let Paul go, all Festus had to say is, hey, I had no choice. It's the Roman law. Suck it up. Festus might have been surprised by Paul's appeal, as Jameson Fawcett Brown says. What? You want to go to Rome? That's a long way away for a Jewish guy. But at any rate. Paul is going to go to Rome. But before he goes to Rome, he's going to have a little talk with King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. We'll take that up in the next chapter, Acts 25, starting with verse 13. I hope you listened to that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>